us. So we'll begin this morning as usual with the supplication, the Buddha Yoga to, to Padmasambhava. And it does highlight a point that is beyond debate, and that is there is no such thing as secular Dzogchen. Uh, it's embedded in a very, very rich worldview, a set of values, a way of life. Uh, the notion of plucking out from that wonderfully enriched and utterly interrelated matrix or system, whatever you want to call it, of the view, the meditation, the way of life, the notion of plucking out uh, a method, like a non-method of just open presence, without that context, and thinking you still have Dzogchen, uh, is silly. So some people want to believe silly things, that's their right, but it is completely silly and with no basis in reality. And so whatever one's feelings or opinions about it are, this fact, that especially in Vajrayana, and within Vajrayana, of course, Dzogchen, the relationship with the Guru, with the Lama, is of enormous importance. Uh, if one doesn't want to accept that, it's fine, but then it's not legitimate practice. You, know, you just can't do that. It's like saying, this is Mayana Buddhism, but we don't like bodhicitta. You can't just pluck the heart out and say, we still have a living organism here. You know? And so, at the same time, you know, I'm a Westerner, I get it. And we've all heard so many scandals, so many abuses you know, by gurus, mostly men. In fact, all the, all, all the ones I can remember were by men. There were a number of very fine women lamas, and I don't remember any scandals at all. It seems like the men have a monopoly on that. Of course, not all men. There are so many really fine men lamas, but some. And this is not just in, in, in Buddhism, it's in Hinduism, it's elsewhere. Priests in the Roman Catholic tradition, hardly a secret. You know, so, so men, here it is, men in positions of spiritual authority. There have just been so many cases, I think probably in all traditions, of real abuse. And so the notion of creating a very trustful, a very deep, even a reverent relationship, or a devoted relationship, with a man in a position of spiritual authority, raises real issues, qualms. They're legitimate, reality-based qualms. Now, His Holiness has addressed this in great detail, uh, and for all the qualms and all the problems that have been raised, all the, the abuses of that kind of spiritual authority and what comes with it, it's still an undeniable fact that you just can't have Vajrayana without the Guru Yoga. And Dzogchen without the Guru Yoga, without the relationship with the Guru, you just can't make it up. You say, well, we screwed up, let's just not do that anymore, and then throw the baby out with the bathwater. It can't work. So it just means that we have to show, I think, a lot of discernment, a lot of wisdom, and a high degree of responsibility, both from the side of teachers as well as students. Now, there is such a thing as taking a secular approach to teaching certain practices drawn from the Buddhist tradition. There, there, is, there is that. That's legitimate. It's done very frequently. In the modern Vipassana movement, it's very often taught really quite secularly. And so, you know, people, uh, Jew, traditional devout Jews and Christians and atheists and all kinds of people will come to Vipassana retreats because they're, kind of, they're not presenting this in a religion fashion. So you have to take refuge in the Buddha, let alone establish a guru-disciple relationship with the teacher. And so taking that secular or at least quasi-secular approach has been proved to be very helpful. Very helpful. TM is largely secular. It is secular. There's no notion of developing a guru-disciple relationship with your instructor. I, I took TM 45 years ago, and the inst instructor gives you the teachings, and you say thank you, and that's it. You know, I never saw the person again. Um, so in terms of secularized approaches to teaching meditations from the Buddhist tradition, and I chose my words very carefully, well, this is something that Dalai Lama has encouraged. 
encouraged uh, a group of scientists, and I was there as an interpreter back in the year 2000 for this Destructive Emotions Mind and Life meeting, and His Holiness encouraged the group, it would be very good to draw from the wisdom of the modern psychological tradition, the wisdom of the Buddhist tradition, bring these two together and offer something that is secular, so people who are religious, not religious, Christian, Buddhist, Hindu, whatever they may be, they can get benefit. So you know the story. Paul Ekman picked up that challenge. He recruited me. We came up with this 42-hour training of cultivating emotional balance. I've taught it three times, uh, and I, I know how to teach in a secular fashion, and I have no qualms about doing it. For the four years that I was a professor, or a lecturer, at the University of California, Santa Barbara, teaching sleeping, dreaming, dying, nature of consciousness, and so forth, teaching a lot of Buddhist material, teaching in a secular fashion. You're a lecturer. You don't, you don't say, okay, students, now you take refuge in me. I mean, you get fired by the time you'd said it, you know, which is fine. I had no qualms about doing that. But of course, then I wasn't really teaching Buddhism. I was talking about Buddhism. And then some, some of the students were inspired to actually seek a teacher, in some cases me, off campus, teaching Dharma as Dharma. And so it is legitimate. There's no problem. It's done all the time in academia. It's, pro it's proper. It's proper. And then other kind of secularized versions. The CEB is a secular presentation, a, a secular mode, drawing from the Buddhist tradition, but it's not really teaching Buddhism as such. There's no, refu there's no reference to refuge to you know, guru yoga, to past, you know, past, past lives, karma, and so forth. For the first five retreats that I led here, eight-week retreats, just teaching shamatha and the four immeasurables, well, there's nothing really uniquely Buddhist about shamatha or uniquely Buddhist about the four immeasurables, even though the particular methods were Buddhist. And so those were open to anybody. And the whole issue, as, as I can remember, for those first five of the retreats we had here, I don't recall ever even raising the issue, really, about the relationship with the guru and so forth and so on. Just teach. And if people have faith, they have faith. If they gradually want to cultivate a deeper relationship, that's fine. If they don't, no problem. You know? If they want to follow a Buddhist path, great. If they want to use those shamatha and the four immeasurables to, to follow a secular approach or a Christian approach, that's all fine. All good. So we have all of that. And it, it really plays a valuable role. On the other hand, there's the possibility of actually leading people to enlightenment, to liberation and enlightenment, following the Buddhist path, taking refuge, placing one's trust, one's confidence, sense of reverence in the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha. It doesn't say that you're believing everything that's said literally in the Pali Canon, the Mahayana, or anything else. It's just this matter of trust, having studied the teachings, learned about the life of the Buddha, the great adepts following him, Feeling the sense of trust, and it's an existential trust. It's not like going to a dentist or a doctor who helps you over this little problem and that little problem. This is, this is an issue of trust, that you're entrusting your whole existence and future lives. That's pretty, that's pretty intense. But if the trust is worthy, it's incredibly powerful, transformative, and liberating. It's true. So, if one is following, if one is teaching people, follow the Shravakayana, to realize their own liberation. And you are capable of doing so. And students look to you with that aspiration. Please lead me to fortunate future lives, because otherwise it would be hard to have any continuity in my practice. But over the long term, to achieve liberation, then we first have the issue, who's qualified? And that's a bit daunting. <laughs> if you look in the traditional literature, uh, a fully qualified teacher of the Shravakayana 
as a master of Vinaya, a master of Abhidhamma, a master of the sutras and the commentaries, great erudition, perfect ethics, preferably a monk or a nun. And so really quite august, quite august quality. So I've, I've, I've served, that is, I've been it, I have been and am a disciple of one such master, Balangoda Ananamaitreya. He was everything. The superb monk, the great scholar, the accomplished meditator, everything. He filled, he completely filled all of the qualities. And he took me and really when I just showed up, I'd had some major physical problems, disruptions of my prana system and so forth. And I was, I was so pathetic. <laughs> I was in India, it was 1980. And I was wandering around India with my backpack and kind of, because the, the retreat center where I'd been meditating and had some rather strong experiences, uh, there was nobody there to give any guidance. And so I was wandering around, really like a stray dog. <laughs> Looking, anybody give me some guidance here? And somebody told me about this great teacher who had been, who had been you know, head of the major Buddhist college, university, just really one of the most, maybe the most renowned teacher in all of Sri Lanka at the time, but he'd retired from that and retired to go back to his little tiny temple where he was raised, uh, Udumula, Udumula, tiny, tiny village, tiny, tiny little temple. That was his retirement place. And he had just like a dozen monks there in a couple of kutis, little, little cabins, where there were, happened to be two Westerners, one Englishman, one American, who were there training with him. And they had an empty, empty room. And so I heard about this, this great, great scholar, I mean, re, re, truly world-renowned. And so I showed up in his doorstep, really like a, like a stray dog. And he took me in. He took me in. It was amazing. Because I was really no, I was basically still in, but certainly back then, I was even more of a nobody than I am now. And he took me in. So I know what it's like to be able to receive guidance, personal guidance, one-on-one, -on -one, from a truly accomplished Sravakayana master. Tremendous erudition. And it's so open, so open-minded, amazing. So if one, as I did with him, and I do with him, he's passed away, of course. I know him when he was about 80, and he lived to almost 100. Um, if one receives guidance, comes under the care, and receives the guidance of such a qualified teacher, then in the Shravakayana, there is a, the authentic way to view the teacher. It's not just a buddy, or a coach, or a teacher, or an instructor. This person in authentic practice, where there's an agreement, this, this teacher is here to guide you on the path to liberation. You are looking to this teacher for that guidance. So it's a, a mutual understanding here. You're not just looking to reduce stress, or get better concentration skills, or develop emotional balance. It's kind of like the stakes are infinitely higher. In this context, there is an appropriate way of viewing that guru, spiritual mentor, kalyanamitra, whatever you want to call the person. And that is, and this is classic teaching, you view that teacher, gender of course is irrelevant, whether the person is a monastic or non-monastic, utterly secondary. You view that teacher as an emissary of the Buddha, an emissary, like an ambassador for a, for a government or an emissary of a king. So not the president, not the king, but you're just, this is an emissary of the Buddha. So if you, are, if you invite, let's say, the U.S. ambassador, now let's take another country, Norway, the Norwegian ambassador, nice, nice country, you know, really clean country, really clean government, really wonderful. I have so much admiration. But if we, if we invited the ambassador of Norway here, then 
this person might have a pot belly, might be ugly, old, might smoke, might stutter, might have a grizzled beard, might be bald, whatever. Might be a man or a woman, young or old, attractive or unattractive. But all of that is kind of neither here nor there. This person has been appointed by his government to represent their whole country. And therefore, as such, you look right through the veneer of that person's personality, that person's physical appearance and so forth, and you say, welcome, the honorable ambassador, whatever the title is, welcome. And you treat that person with respect as an ambassador of the whole country. Or if it's a king, an emissary of the king. As if this is, this is as close as you're going to get to the king. So you show the veneration not quite as the king himself, but say, whoa, this person was chosen. This is as close as I get to the king. So great respect. But you see, it's completely impersonal. It's not idolatry. It's not like, oh, I just, you know, I'm so crazy about this ambassador. He's so cool. He's an ambassador. And you need to respect him as such. So that's the legitimate. Now, as I mentioned, there are, I didn't mention, but I'll mention now, in terms of the Theravada tradition, there are relatively few teachers of the nobility, the vast erudition, the purity, greatness, as Balangoda Ananda, Ananamaitreya. And that's very rare. I'm not even in this, I'm not even in the same galaxy. In terms of my knowledge of the Pali can I can't even read Pali, you know, commentaries and so forth. And so there's no comparison. No comparison at all. And not many people can compare, you know. But then we can ask in this modern, what we have to call degenerate era, when we're seeking, let's say you, you would really like to follow the path described in the Pali Canon, the Shravakayana, and you'd like to somebody, find someone who will guide you, you know, who can take you the next step. Here's the, advi- here's the advice in degenerate times. You know. I mean, we have the classic, the person should be a master of all the tripitaka and so forth and so on. But if you can't find such a person, let's imagine you live in Norway and there's just no one there in all of Norway who has those qualities. Then what do you do? You say, well, I guess I can't, I can't go after all because I look for somebody with all of those qualities. There aren't any, so I'm out of luck. I just I'll wander around in samsara for another countless eon or something. And then in such degenerate eras, then, there, then the footnote is, all right, if you can't find somebody who's fully qualified, then find somebody who has greater knowledge and or experience of the path than you do and who will guide you out of compassion. That's it. Now, if the person doesn't have more knowledge or experience than you do, then you wouldn't go to them for guidance because it doesn't make any sense. Right? There might be Dharma buddies with them. They might be your student. They might just be a friend or a stranger. But it doesn't make any sense if the person you're going to doesn't have greater knowledge and experience, at least and or experience, than you do. So that's just common sense. But the other point is enormously important. Motivation. If one's motivation is, oh, I need to make some money, so I'm going to be a Dharma teacher. Well, why don't you just reel that right back in again? This means you're going to use dharma for the sake of your own hedonic ends. Now, what kind of teacher are you going to be? You're using other people so you can make some money. Oh, and I found a good commodity. I found some good merchandise. It's selling pretty well. I say the marketing has gone quite well. I think I'll sell some dharma. I'll be a salesman of dharma, and I'll make some money that way. Well, now you've sabotaged the whole tradition. You're misleading your students. And you may as well stop right there. That's not the motivation. If the motivation is not, we don't need, the, need, you, need to use the word exalted word, compassion, maybe that's too lofty. But if one is teaching for a motivation, the primary core motivation being other, something other than, I'd really like to be of assistance. 
I'd like to help, I'd like to be of service. Uh, whatever knowledge and experience I have, I, I put this at your disposal to help you along the next step. And maybe I can only help you for six months, and you will have tapped me out. Everything I've offered, maybe you will have received. But if I can take you one millimeter, one yard in the right direction, and then I really can't be of service anymore because you know everything I had to share, and maybe you've tapped into and even transcended my own experience, then I wish you well, and then that person finds another teacher and another step, another step, another step, each time. So you might have 40 teachers. I've had 40 lamas or so over the last 44 years. Uh, they're all still my lamas. None of them retired. Most of them passed away. But none of them have stopped being my lamas. It's not like you know, any other relationship. Even after they passed away, it's still, it's still a relationship. Because you're thinking, if, you don't achieve, if I don't achieve enlightenment this lifetime, I want to have them all on call. I want to connect with all of them next time. And especially my root guru. Above all the root guru. Because if I connect with him, then everything will be taken care of. That'll be, then everything will be fine. If I can connect with this one, it's Dalai Lama. I'm set. No problem. You know. But I make prayers to maintain this connection with all of my lamas. So, but that's it. It's pretty simple. If you look to somebody as a guru to follow the Shravakayana, as an emissary with the Buddha, to be, speed, be treated, viewed, engaged with, with such respect. And you see there's no idolatry there at all. Now, that teacher, Shravakayana, has a responsibility. As soon as you enter into this kind of relationship, big responsibility. And that is you must be teaching out of kindness, out of compassion. There should be no manipulation, no exploitation. And for heaven's sakes, of course, no, nothing sexual or financial. The two big, they say in the Hindu tradition, uh, what is it, women and gold. Women and gold, that's how they summarize it. Women, how, do, how do gurus screw up? Women and gold. Either they get caught in sexual stuff or they're exploiting their students to develop, I don't know, I don't need to give examples. You know, we all know about it. So that's the guru's responsibility. The, the purpose of the relationship is really for the sake of the student. Not, I need to make some money, or I'd like to have a lot of students. I'd like to be a lama. I'd like to have my own monastery. I'd like, I'd like, I'd like. Go back to retreat. You're not ripe. You're not ripe yet. You're unripe fruit. You know, if it's for your sake, then go back. Even the notion as one studying dharma, I, I was told this by my own teachers, the notion of studying dharma so that one can become a dharma teacher. You might want to check up on that a bit. Slow down. Slow down. You're practicing dharma to purify your mind to find liberation, to find awakening. And if at some point somebody asks you from their side, without you putting up marketing you know, and all that kind of business, ask you for their assistance, then you'll check to see whether you're qualified to help, whether your motivation is suitable. So this happened to me after I've been training full-time for six years. These Swiss shepherds, cowherders, one was a lawyer, others different professions, but they basically kind of dropped out. Uh, they'd heard me translate for Geshe Rappen, and then they asked me if I'd give some teachings, Westerner to Westerner. My first response, of course, no. I've only been only training for six years. Are you kidding me? But I didn't tell them, though. I just went to Geshe Rappen. They said, they've asked me to teach, but I know I'm completely unqualified. And so, no, right? And they said, yes, right? And so that's when I began teaching. You know, Geshe Rappen told me I, I needed to. I wouldn't have done it. So I led a retreat on the four applications of mindfulness, which Gishar Apna never taught. But I had a sense, Shamata, four applications of mindfulness. 
this people can really re relate to, because I could, because I'm a Westerner. You know? And so I drew from my experience already, because I'd had fairly extensive training from one monk trained in Thailand. So I wasn't you know, just on my own there. Let's move on quickly to Mahayana. And once again, the criterion. Oh, and just by the way, it's not just a one-way responsibility. The guru has the responsibility towards the students. Throughout all of these, Shravakayana, Mahayana, Vajrayana, students have a responsibility to teach as well, uh, with that basic view. But then, three modes of service to the guru. One is to look after the physical needs. And again, I choose my words carefully. To look after the physical needs of your teacher. If the teacher doesn't have enough food, you should make sure the teacher has enough food doesn't have shelter, doesn't have clothing, doesn't have medical care when needed. Hey, students, wake up. Do you want him to die or her to die? Take care, for heaven's sake. So you look after the physical needs. You don't have any obligation to make your guru wealthy or give them luxuries or lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of chocolate. <laughs> you really don't have to do that at all. There's no obligation. If I never receive another chocolate bar in my life, that'll be really quite okay. Because I'm not that attached to it, actually. <laughs> I've eaten so much by now. It's like, oh, more dark chocolate. Oy, oy, oy. <laughs> but looking after physical needs first. That's one, of course. But it's common sense. But look after the physical needs, right? And then the guru may very well have act activities for the service of the Dharma, for the service of sentient beings. And so if, as those who are taking care of the podcast, that's part of our service here that I'm not simply serving 36 people or 40 people, but also so happily, so, so happily, being able to then share whatever I can with people all over the world, but I can't do that by myself. I don't know, any about, I don't know anything about all that stuff over there in the technical corner. So thanks to Danny, the other volunteers here, then this eight weeks is helping so many other people. I get a lot of very nice response. Oh, these are helpful, these are helpful. Makes me so happy, but I couldn't do that. So that's a way of serving the the teacher, the guru, is in his or her activities to be of service, help with the service. You know. And then the final one, and this is always said to be the most important, three modes of service. Take care of the guru's material needs, help the guru in utterly dharma-related things. You know. And then the third one, which is the most important, yeah, your own practice. Put into practice the teachings. If you're just hearing, hearing, writing notes, you're developing a bigger, bigger library of all the notes that you've taken and for which the content you've already forgotten, you know, if that's all it is, then the most important thing was left out. So it's putting into practice the teachings. So you test them for yourself, you get benefit for yourself. If you have qualms, if some teachings are not working for you, then with respect you go to the teacher and say, I tried these teachings, it just it was tying me up to knots, or I didn't find any real benefit. So exactly as if, it's a very strong parallel, as if your guru is, is your, let's say, traditional Tibetan medical doctor. You receive, the, the doctor does the pulse diagnosis, urine analysis, questions you, and so forth, and then will give you a morning meditation, I see medication, afternoon medication, and evening medication, in most cases, and then you take it for some time, and if you're living near the doctor, then every week you check in, and you get another checkup. And you bring your little, little jar of urine again, and you bring your pulse again, and you check it out. And so then, through dialogue, with open, respectful dialogue, you say, well, I was feeling kind of nauseous after taking the afternoon medicine. Is that the right one, or, or is it good that I'm nauseous for a little while? Because it's bringing up some stuff. 
I'm finding that when I take the evening medi- a medication, I'm not sleeping so well. Is that okay, or might it be altered? The morning meditation is me wor- really working. The, my energy is really good in the morning. Whatever is happening, or the symptoms here are subsiding, or the symptoms are not subsiding. I'm getting these benefits, these side effects. It's time for complete candor, total openness, including giving positive reports. Oh, the medication was really helpful and not positive. I wasn't getting any benefit. Does this mean that simply this problem can't be cured or I do need another medication? Or should I look to some other medical tradition? Maybe this isn't a strength of Tibetan medicine. But that kind of candor, openness, respectful dialogue, and not thinking, oh, my guru is omniscient, whatever he gives me is perfect, even though I'm feeling terrible and I'm not getting any benefit. I'm sure there's going to be benefit in my future life. Well, that's no, that's blind faith. I'm sorry, I think there's a lot of damage has been done by people being too afraid of their own teachers that they can't even be honest. What kind of a relationship is that? And I think it happens not too infrequently. Not healthy. Not good for the guru, not good for the disciple, not good for anybody or for the flourishing of Buddhadhamma in general. So finally, let's move, not finally, but penultimately. I think this is important material. That's why I'm taking our time for it. Mayana. Mayana. Now it's a different worldview. We're, we're not, we're, it's a larger worldview. The whole notion of Dhammakaya, the whole notion of Buddha nature, the whole notion of emptiness, the perfection of wisdom. You've moved into another stratosphere, another whole way of viewing reality, the rooted in the perfection of wisdom, right? and bodhicitta, and Dharmakaya, and blessings, and so forth. And so in this radically different context, where you're viewing the guru as being empty of inherent nature, as you are also empty of inherent nature, classic sutrayana practice, right? And you're viewing the Dharmakaya as being everywhere, everywhere present, pervading the mind streams of all sentient beings, viewing all sentient beings having the potential of perfect enlightenment, and the mind streams of all sentient beings being indivisible from, or being totally permeated by Dharmakaya. That's a different worldview. That's not Theravada. That's not Sravakana. This is not Mayana. So therefore, the way of viewing the guru authentically, if what you're seeking is, again, not just stress reduction or something secular, which is fine, but then it's not Mayana. If you're now seeking to achieve enlightenment, perfect enlightenment of a Buddha for the sake of all sentient beings, and you're going to someone, you're thinking this may be three countless eons, then you're going to want to have this guru around for a long time. Not one or two lifetimes guru, and then, ah, hasta la vista guru, and then there you are. Oh, the ocean of samsara is so big. Oh, where am I? Let's make some money. And then you're lost again. You know. It's wonderful to encounter a fully enlightened being who manifests all the deeds of a Buddha, like Buddha Shakyamuni. If you're such fortunate, you have unbelievable good fortune. But if you don't, and you don't have a guru, lots of luck by reading books. How about becoming a medical doctor by reading some books about medicine? Would you ever want to be operated on by a person who's read a lot of books about surgery? Nothing worthwhile. Nothing deeply transformative. The notion of a path just by reading books or not even having books. I'll just, I'll just count on my own intuition. I'm sure that's going to work out well. I've been in samsara for countless lifetimes, but this is going to be different. Because I'll make decisions that are not influenced by my delusion, craving, hostility. That's, that's going to work. That was ironic, by the way, in case that wasn't obvious. So this is a much deeper relationship. And so now, directly from the words of His Holiness, to, from His lips to my ear, a one-on-one conversation, it's not that it's secret, but 
I got it directly from him. How in the Mahayana context, not Vajrayana, Bodhisattvayana, in this context, what is the authentic way of viewing the Guru? And his Holiness said, Sangi Dushe Sha. Sangi Dushe Sha. And Dushe is attitude, or way of discerning, way of viewing, and Sangi is Buddha. And so it's literally the discernment of a Buddha or as a Buddha, but his Holiness then glossed it, he clarified it. And that is in this context, Sutrayana, Bodhisattvayana, you're viewing the Guru as if he or she were a Buddha. As if. In other words, you're not focusing on the person's flaws, maybe he stutters, maybe she, let's say, well, whatever, I don't care. He sh- maybe stutters, maybe is not all that erudite, maybe has bad breath, maybe is not very attractive, blah, blah, blah. You know, maybe not so articulate. You're not focusing on that. You're focusing on this person as being really like a, like a magnifying glass. That through this individual, as I view through this individual who is empty of inherent nature, I'm looking to the Dhammakaya, manifesting Sambhokakaya, Nirmanakaya. This is my guru. The Buddha is my guru. And the blessings, the wisdom, the compassion are flowing from the Dhammakaya through this individual. So I will view this individual as if he or she are Buddha. But it's really, once again, transcendent. It's not idolatry. It's not personality cult. It's not any of the above. It's really, this is close to the Dharmakaya as I get. Not historical Buddha, Dharmakaya. This one is the one I've chosen, who most embodies and articulates, expresses the view, the wisdom, compassion of the Buddha. And therefore, as if Buddha. No fooling oneself. No pretending something that you don't think is true. Right? Don't need to pretend. As if. But this is now not just the conduit like an emissary going back in time to the Buddha Shakyamuni. This is the conduit of the blessings of Dhammakaya. So through this individual, I can receive the blessings, the transformative blessings, the wisdom, the guidance, the compassion. And of course, then, from the side of the guru, there's an enormous responsibility. And that is to the best of your ability. Teach only out of bodhicitta. No other motivation is good enough. It has to be bodhicitta. Not simply benevolence, kindness, or wanting to be of service. It has to be bodhicitta. Otherwise, the whole thing is off. Just off, you know? It has to be a motivation of bodhicitta. One's whole way of life needs to accord as much as possible with the bodhisattva way of life, set forth so eloquently and quite completely, frankly, in Shantideva's classic work, A Guide to the Bodhisattva Way of Life. And if you have all the ten qualities of Mahayana Guru, fantastic. But they are rare, especially in degenerate times like this. So if you can't find somebody with all the ten qualities, all right, find somebody who is better versed, has more experience and knowledge than you do on the Mayana path, and will teach you how to bodhicitta. You know? So there's a responsibility from the guru's side to do your very best, not to get in the way. Don't defile, don't block, don't smudge, don't contaminate the sublime teachings of the Buddha, the blessings of the Buddha. Get out of the way. And so those blessings, the wisdom, and so forth can flow through and there can be great benefit, and maybe far, far greater than your own individual capacity as a human being, with your knowledge, your this, because blessings do come through. I have no high realization, but this is something I know, that I'm not just teaching as Alan Wallace. I'd probably quit, because I'd be bored by now. And I'd say, ah, listen, listen to the podcast, listen to the tape recording, I published 40 books, read them. You know, if that's all I had to offer, it's Alan Wallace's stuff. I published everything, pretty much, it's done. And the podcast, you know, you got eight podcasts. Listen to them. Knock yourself out. You know? 
<laughs> but if something else is coming through, then it's always fresh. You never know it's coming. You listen and you transmit. You listen and you transmit. So then I listen. I get a lot of benefit by listening to the teachings coming through. Sometimes I think, really cool. Wow, those were good teachings. Sometimes I think, like last night, oh, I've heard those teachings before. But maybe a few other people haven't, so maybe it was not a waste of time. So that's Mahayana. As if, as if. The, guru, the disciples' responsibility to the Guru is always the same. It doesn't change. Then we go to Vajrayana and Dzogchen. Now we're in the Dzogchen view. Where all these appearances are rising, but they don't exist. The whole appearance of us being sentient beings, it appears, but it's not there from the perspective of Rigpa. It's an impure appearance created by karma, by kleshas. It's a, it's a phantasm. It's a mirage. It's an illusion. It appears, but it's not really there. The guru is some sentient being who has this much knowledge, but not that much. This much compassion, not that much. Who's limited here, there, the other way. The guru is still on the path all very well. It has its reality. Nobody's denying that. But when you're practicing Dzogchen, you're looking through that. If you're not, you're not practicing Dzogchen. If you're not looking through your own identity as a sentient being, but still practicing as a sentient being from that perspective. You're not practicing Dzogchen. You can practice open, open awareness for as long as you like. It's not Dzogchen. Right. And so in this context now, and it's for, true for all of Adriana, and then most explicitly the Dzogchen, you, guru, you view the Guru as a Buddha. And that is you dissolve all ordinary appearances and all of your ordinary ideas about your concepts, your preconceptions, Everything you think you know about the guru as a sentient being, as a dharma buddy, as a spiritual friend, as a dharma teacher, and so forth, sentient being, sentient being, all the way through, all may have its validity. We're not challenging that. We're not asking anybody to do make-believe. You know he's really a sentient being, but now let's just pretend as if he's a Buddha. Who needs that? I have no use for that. I'm too old to pretend. That was for cowboys and Indians, cops and robbers when I'm five. Fun for the play, you know, playground. But I'm just too old for that. I have no time to pretend, you know. So now you just dissolve. You dissolve everything equally. Your whole environment, other sentient beings, your guru, yourself, dissolve everything into emptiness. And then out of emptiness, this emptiness non-dual from dharma, dharmakaya, then you view your guru as Samantabhadra, primordial Buddha. In this context, Samantabhadra manifesting as Padmasambhava. Buddha, nothing less than Buddha. But of course, what we're not doing, and it happens ever so often, is, of course, I'm just a sentient being. Shucks, little old me. But my guru, oh, Buddha, omniscient, perfect, incredible. I'm kind of a schmuck myself, but the guru is really amazing. Unbelievable. You're not practicing Dzogchen. It's a very sweet kind of idolatry. Might give some good karma. Maybe fortunate rebirth? Dzogchen? <laughs> There's no Dzogchen there. It reminds me of some people you know, who used to adulate Michael, what was this guy's name? Michael, Michael, not, not Jordan, he's the sports guy, you know, the, the Jackson, Matt Jackson. Yeah, like how much, wow, Michael Jackson. Or the Beatles. <laughs> you know? His holiness, Dalai Lama. It looks rather similar. 
I want to hold your hand. Everybody liked to hold the Dalai Lama's hand. Paul Ekman got the opportunity to do it, change his life, transformed his life. It was incredible, truly a deep spiritual transformation. And his holiness took his hand. So I think a lot of people would like that. No, it's equal. You dissolve your own identity, emptiness, you come out with pure vision. Dissolve the guru into emptiness, come out with pure vision. And the whole point is to sustain that purity of vision throughout the whole course of the relationship, never slipping into impure view, ordinary identity. As soon as you do, you're not practicing Dzogchen anymore. Right? Slipped into, well, whatever, something else, but not Dzogchen. But the culmination of this, as we're just about to begin, of course we're running rather late tonight, is when you, having offered supplications, looking upon the Guru as Buddha, as Padmasambhava, Samantabhadra, and calling for a flood of blessings to your body, speech, and mind, and then that dissolution, that coming, that dissolution of the Guru into yourself, indivisible merging of body, speech, and mind, and now having that sense. And then, of course, it's done with power of imagination at the beginning of your own awareness being utterly non-dual, from that of the Guru, which is none other than the mind of Samatabhadra, which is none other than your own pristine awareness. So it goes loop. right? It's looping out to the Guru and then comes back to, but who is Samatabhadra? Some Buddha out there in some high realm called Akanishta, probably in another galaxy, you know, to which may make long-distance calls. And of course, Samatabhadra is none other than the personification of your own pristine awareness. And this is skillful means. All of this is skillful means to actually know who you are, but you see, you won't be able to do that if you're viewing the closest you're getting to Samatabhadra, the, the clearest embodiment and teacher of Dzogchen you can find, if you view even that person as simply an ordinary sentient being, then what chance, you know? Because this person should have greater understanding, realization, and so forth than you do. And if you can't even view that person with pure vision, then you have no chance of viewing yourself. If you can't do the higher, you won't be able to do the lower. So this is why this is skillful means. Skillful means. And if at any point it seems like, well, okay, I'll give the guru a break. I'll start viewing him as a Buddha. Stop. <laughs> Man, I can tell you, you know, it really doesn't matter at all. Somebody regards me as a Buddha. Somebody regards me as a schmuck. So what? I have a sense of who I am. Am I manifestly a Buddha? For heaven's sakes, no. Am I a schmuck? Well, that's all depends on your relativity level of schmuckiness. <laughs> but am I, am I an inherently existent schmuck? No. I'm not an inherently existent schmuck. Relatively speaking, okay, I see, that, I see a case could be made. I acknowledge that. You know. So this is Okchen. The only authentic view, then. Final point, because I'm kind of on a roll here. I'm enjoying this. I'm listening to the talk. I'm enjoying it. How does faith arise? It arises in different ways. Great masters, like Kepshi Dujon Rinpoche, Gyawa Kamapas, Holiness, Sakitiza Rinpoche, and the list goes on, Yangta Rinpoche, Tushi Rinpoche, the list goes on, Dodechen Rinpoche, Ling Rinpoche, ah, oh, so many others. You meet them, and something in you changes you have a sense of transcendence. You have a sense of spiritual greatness by their presence, by the way they're teaching, the content of what they're teaching, the way they're manifesting. 
And because they move you, they arouse a sense of reverence, real reverence, not just respect. Then as you listen to a great being like Jujun Muji, including, I've never met him yet, but some of my own Dharma friends have been able to sit at the feet of and listen to the Dujum Yangsit Ramaji, young man, tremendously moved, tremendously moved, not just a very bright young man, but oh, the depth is there, as if this is an old man speaking through happily a young man's body. So that happens. And so if it's, for example, a Dujum Rinpoche or the Dujum Yangsit Rinpoche, one may be deeply moved, a sense of reverence, of faith, trust arising. And then you may say, and, and which tradition are you mentioning? Or which, which tradition are you representing? Oh, that of Padmasambhava? Therefore, Padmasambhava must be great. Therefore, I take refuge in Padmasambhava because look, Dujum Rinpoche, he's an extraordinary lama. And he's representing the lineage, the teachings of Padmasambhava. So therefore, on the basis of your faith in the lama that you can see, you may then launch that off to reverence, faith, devotion, taking refuge in the lama you can't see. Padmasambhava. Very understandable. Happens a lot. But then when the guru passes away, then you're just left with Padmasambhava, which may be something of an abstraction. So then you may feel a little bit of a loss. My guru is gone. My guru is gone. And I just have this idea of this man who lived, seems like a semi-mythical creature, who lived 1,200 years ago. So you may be a little bit on your own. It can happen, and I stopped talking about Dujon Rinpoche. It can, I have seen this happen, where people, I remember, I don't even give a specific example. One, it may happen that one meets a certain lama, very impressed by the lama, feels faith and devotion, and then the lama behaves in a certain way that at least from your perspective seems completely incompatible with the dharma, really disappoints you, disillusions you. And it may be actually did occur. Maybe the, the dharma lama really screwed up. It does happen, we know that. But it can be also in your own perception, your own expectations, that you have an ideal. This is how Lama should behave. And then if Lama does anything differently, whoa, not such a good Lama after all. He was going, he was going pretty well for a while, but then, oh, I don't like that. I don't like that. The Lama that I have is, should be like St. Francis of Assisi. That, that is my idealized notion of St. Francis, Francis of Assisi, or whatever. So we have rather naive notions. We don't in the modern West have notions that a guru may be peaceful, expansive, powerful, or even ferocious. That's classic for Buddhism. All coming from the same motivation. Very peaceful, very calm. Like they say Dujun Rinpoche was just enormously serene. That was just like he was an ocean of serenity on all occasions. So we like that. I like Lama to be very peaceful. But some are really expansive. They just they drench you. They saturate with profound their erudition, their, their creativity, their dynamism, and so forth. They're really enriching, enriching, enriching. And we kind of like that. Sometimes, though, they may manifest real power. And that could be a bit intimidating. And on occasion, they may, they may manifest wrathfulness. We just generally don't like that. If they show ferocity, wrathfulness. Don't like that so much. And so, if one's faith is all based upon one's perceptions of an individual who's alive, it's a bit precarious. Because we're coming in with delude, as deluded sentient beings, with preconceptions, with impure vision, our visions heavily structured by our own mental afflictions. We can see negativity where there's no negativity. We can also see negativity where there is negativity. It's very hard to tell which is which. And so that's kind of fragile faith. If the faith 
in the Buddha Dhamma is hinging on one individual or even a couple of individuals. They may behave in a way that don't conform to our expectations, or they may behave in ways that are not, incompat- are not compatible with Dharma. It happens. In which case, then you may have your whole faith shattered, and then Padmasambhava, bye-bye. Samadabhadra, bye-bye. Because everything was hinging on that little ice flow, that little floating iceberg of your guru. So to reverse that, to, look, to, read, to, re- to read and to really learn about the life story of Padmasambhava, or Tsongkhapa, or Sakya Pandita, Milarepa, Marpa, oh, this goes on so many times. Back to Nagarjuna, Shantideva, Asanga, Buddha Shakyamuni himself, Shariputra, Maudgayayana Putra, and reading about the lives of these individuals going right back to the Buddha himself, then one may feel, one may feel a sense of devotion. Oh, such beings grace this world. What they brought to the world by their presence, by their activities, so sublime. Where is there a representative of that tradition? And then your faith in the individual may be by the power of your faith in these great adepts, the Sangha, the Buddha and the Sangha. And feeling, if you're representing that tradition and you don't defile it, you don't distort it, you don't misrepresent it, you're not acting incompatibly with this tradition, then you're my guru. And you can screw up. That's okay, I'll find another one. If you totally screw up, okay, I'm sorry you screwed up. I'm going to find a teacher who is authentic. I'll find another one and I'll put you in neutral. I'm not going to slander you, abuse you, but... If, you know, something goes awry, I'll put you in neutral. But I'll find another one because I have faith in the lineage. I have faith, faith in the Sangha. I have faith in that Sangha goes all the way back to the Buddha. And so teachers come and go. They get sick, they, get, they die, they get old. On occasion, they screw up. Most don't, not significantly. But do they have mental afflictions coming up once in a while? Certainly possible. Why not? Will we recognize them as such? Maybe. Or will we just project them? Maybe. Hard to tell. So that's a more durable type of faith, where you really learn something about the, the lives, the activities of these great beings, these mahasattvas, these great beings throughout the course of Buddhist history. And said, oh, then I'll find the closest I can get to that tradition. That's deeper. That's a possibility. But there's even deeper possibility. It's even more stable, more durable, has a deeper root system. And that's looking at the Dharma looking at the teachings, looking at the Pali Canon, looking at the great Mahayana Sutras, the Perfection of Wisdom Sutras, the, the Sutras on the Buddha Nature, the Sutras of the Mahayana Canon, looking into Vajrayana, reading, learning, really drenching your mind in the Dharma, and seeing its depth, its integrity, its power, its majesty. And your first refuge may be the Dharma. For me, that was the case. It was a book, not a person. First person I met was kind of like, he, he was like a pointer. Like, Alan, good for you. There. And then I was off. And then there. Then my second teacher said, there. And my third teacher, Sakya Lama in Switzerland, he said, there. And that third there was his whole name is Dalai Lama. Okay, then I stopped. Everything that, since then has been coming from there. But in fact, everything prior to that, even in Germany, it was by the blessings of his holiness. So he's been guiding me for a long time. So, if your faith, your confidence, your trust, your reverence and devotion is really focused on the Dharma, the teachers come and go. Dharma is there. Take no external refuge. Let the Dharma be your refuge. You know, it's deeper. The whole, the whole Mayana Buddhist tradition said, your 
core refuge is the Dharma, or the Kadambas, the great Kadambas, or the authentic Kadamba traditions. The Kansalamatun, Chulatun. Don't rely on individuals, rely on the Dharma. The individuals are there to pass on the Dharma, to transmit the Dharma. The individuals come and go. They're born, they get old, they die. The Dharma is there in this lifetime. Emotion of happiness, really. And it is a motion of reverence. The Dharma is a refuge. And so if your faith in the great beings of the past is rooted in their teachings, then your faith in the Buddha comes from the Buddha's, the Buddha Vach, the Buddha's teachings, the Buddha's words. And because of the majesty, the transformative, the liberating power, the awakening power of the Buddha's teachings, then out of that comes reverence, devotion, faith, and refuge in the Buddha. In Nagarjuna, Asanga, right on through the present teacher. So the Buddha, by, by way of the Dharma, one takes refuge in the individuals, going right back to the Buddha Shakyamuni himself, back to Garap Dorje, or Prahivajra, the first teacher of Dzogchen, to Sri Singha, to Vimlamitra, to Padmasambhava. Faith in them because of the sublime Dharma that they received, they practiced, and they transmitted. And that's where your refuge is. But a final point, finally, Island. Where does this faith come from? For me, this 20-year-old college quasi-hippie, hitchhiking around Europe, pick up this book that was galaxies over my head, Padmasambhava's teaching, Tibetan Book of the Great Liberation, Dzogchen teachings. I read it. At least I had the sense enough to know I didn't understand what I was reading. You know, I knew that. But it just moved something within me, just a resonance, an affinity, something. It just stirred something in the depths of me. But I had just this intuitive sense. This is it. This is what I've been looking for. And as I met my first my teacher, my first teacher, Zongsi Rinpoche, with whom I'm still in contact in Germany. We uh, spoke by phone just not some months ago. I, I just lost my thread entirely. I just I focused on him. Ah, I knew pretty quickly, before I knew almost anything, I'll sacrifice anything for this. I'm going to buy a one-way ticket to India. I'm going to spend 10 years there. I'm going to try to become enlightened. Didn't know much at all. Didn't understood almost nothing, but that was it. It's this. And that entails actually no sacrifice, because there's nothing I really am attached to. This is all that's left. So that was intuition. But why would I be inspired by this book? You know, it's one of Evans Wentz's four books, but why was I inspired? There was something within me that took that to be very profound. But if my mind's deluded, I could look at any kind of thing to be profound, just because I'm deluded. I could think tennis is profound. Or tomato soup. I mean, if I'm really a you know, tomato soup aficionado, then I could think, oh, tomato soup, that's going to be my life. I'm going to make the best tomato soup that any of them ever drunk. That's going to be my life, tomato soup, yay. You know? But it wasn't tomato soup, it was Ochen. Could have gone the other way. <laughs> That's what happened. And so, that intu- and it was utterly intuitive. It wasn't like it was really appealing to my intellect, really profound reasoning, philosophically so astute. Just, just cut right through all of that. 
all my learning, I didn't have much, but whatever I had, intelligence, I had some, could have had more. It cut right through that, like a hot knife through butter, and went right to the core and stirred something there. And so when I basically, in, in essence, took refuge in these Dzogchen teachings, with almost no understanding, but this intuitive movement, what was I really taking refuge in? The mind that viewed that with, refu with reverence. I was trusting. Do you trust your intuition or not? If you don't, then it's not a refuge for you. You better not listen to it. But I trusted it, knowing full well I didn't know much. It wasn't blind faith, though. It wasn't like, I now believe this, this, this. I believe this creed, this catechism. It wasn't that. I didn't know what the catechism was or if there was one. It was way beyond any belief system. Just call it intuitive. But from that point on, reading that book, then meeting Sugata in Norway, coming to Germany, Zonsen and coming to Switzerland, meeting Sherap Gansen, who really first started teaching me Dharma beyond the ten, the ten non-virtues, who then directed me to Dharmsala, meeting Gishin Taigi, appointed by His Holiness, meeting His Holiness, and so forth. What gave the trust to follow that? Because it was extreme jeopardy. I was cutting off every possible source of security that I had. And it was... There was nothing that I could fall back on, because it was like cutting. It was this or nothing. So why have such faith? What do you have faith in, faith in? Trust enough to stake your life on it. Sacrifice your health for it. From all from the very beginning, it's really obvious, isn't it? Taking refuge in your own Buddha nature. What else do we call intuition? But the surface level of expression of movement of the heart that's rooted in our, the core of our being. You know? And you trust it or you don't. You don't have to. But I did. And so, really, there's the final refuge. And it's the beginning, and the middle, and the end. Right. Everything else is derivative. Your refuge in Samadabhadra, your refuge in Buddha Shakyamuni, Nagarjuna, Shantideva, Padmasambhava, refuge in His Holiness, refuge in this text and that text, perfection of wisdom, and Dzogchen, and so forth. <coughs> all of those forms of refuge are all derivative of your refuge in your own Buddha nature. Because if you can't trust your Buddha nature, then why on earth would you trust that you're drawn to and have faith in anything else? So it starts there and it ends there. When finally the guru comes to the crown of your head and dissolves indivisibly with yourself. And you're taking refuge. So that's a little introduction to guru yoga. We're running late. That's okay. Let's begin our practice then. Yukin 
Chingil Lapshi Shaksus Guru Pema Siri Hung again Yukin Lukchan Sam Pema Gesa Dombola Yamzen Shokim Udubye Pema June Shesuta Kodu Kandu Mambu Keki Jesu Datuki Jingi Lapchi Shaksus Guru Pema Siri Hung Hung again Yuki Nutsam San Pema Gesa Dombola Yamsen Choki Mudunye Pema Jone Shesuda Kodu Kando Mambuko Keki Jesu Datuki Jingi Lapchi Shaksus Guru Pema Siri
may switch postures now if you like. Settle your body, speech, and mind in the natural states. Now let's move into the meditative cultivation of mudita, of empathetic joy. I invite you to begin by settling your mind in its natural state, awareness resting in its own place in stillness, and illuminating the space of the mind and whatever comes to mind.
as you set your mind at ease, allowing whatever appearances, memories, and so on to arise of their own accord without trying to control what comes to mind. Let's shift the practice slightly, introducing a question. That is, where is there virtue in the world? Virtue in which we can take delight. We may speak of hedonic virtue, the virtue of seeking to help others be free of suffering, to find happiness within the world, hedonic well-being, things like receiving medical care, education, alleviating poverty, and so on. Are you aware of any hedonic virtue that's taking place in the world right now by individuals, by organizations, perhaps even by countries? See what comes to mind. People bringing goodness to the world, alleviating suffering, helping others find happiness. even the temporary happiness in samsara, we all value that. See who comes to mind. Focus on their virtues. And with every out-breath, breathe out. The sense of rejoicing, taking gladness, finding gladness and delight, satisfaction. in others' virtues, and if you wish, you may imagine, once again, light emanating from your heart. Really simply a show of your appreciation and your gratitude for those who are the healers and the enrichers of the world, the protectors of the world. invite into the field of your awareness those who are contributing to the eudaimonic well-being of the world, helping people find, discover, and cultivate the inner causes of happiness, genuine well-being, whether by drawing on the great sages like Socrates, great religious traditions of the world, 
or modern scientific discoveries into genuine happiness, where people motivated with altruism, with a wish to be of service to help others find greater inner happiness, wherever those who are actively contributing to help people find dharma, genuine happiness and its causes. See who comes to mind and take delight in this very meaningful good they're bringing to the world. Breathe out with a sense of thanksgiving, of gratitude, of rejoicing. Bring to mind those who are devoting themselves single-pointedly to following the path to liberation and awakening. They may be temporarily removed, devoting themselves to solitary practice, purifying their minds, cultivating virtue, discovering their innermost depths. Take delight in the quiet activity, the invisible activity, of those who are becoming beacons of light in a world in which there is so much darkness.
Now turn your awareness to your own life thus far. And with a question, have you brought any good to the world? Have you helped alleviate the hedonic suffering of anyone over the course of your years of your life? Have you helped anyone find hedonic well-being? Have you brought some good to the world within this mundane context? Attend closely and in exactly the same way. As we take delight in and we rejoice in the virtues of others without idolizing them, without reifying them. In exactly the same way. Take delight in the virtue, the goodness you brought within this hedonic domain. People care about it so much. Have you at any time been a spiritual friend, contributed to the eudaimonia of others, helping them find genuine happiness? Identify the true causes of suffering and tap into the inner resources that are the true causes, the source, the origin of genuine well-being and happiness. Have you ever served in that way, enriched the lives of others, by way of dharma. See what comes to mind and take delight in this, in giving the greatest of all gifts, the gift of dharma.
All of us here have devoted ourselves, as we are right now, to our own individual practice, recognizing the afflictions and obscurations of our minds, areas where there's definite room for improvement in our way of behaving, our way of speech and body, devoting ourselves to practice to cultivate virtue and to discover our inner resources to finally discover who we are, finally take to light in your own inner practice and your innermost practice. Take delight in this which brings you to your life the greatest possible meaning. And release all appearances. Withdraw the light of your awareness from the space of your mind. And simply be present, awareness illuminating itself.
enjoy your day. And the meetings this morning will be one half hour late. 